Well, good morning, everybody. I'm so glad you're here with us this morning. I've got an uplifting sermon for you that's going to make you feel so good about yourself. Well, take God's Word in your hands and turn to uh, the book of Romans this morning. And as you've seen, that is by far one of the darkest sermon intros we've ever done. And, uh, and there's a reason for it. For the next eight weeks, we are going to be looking at uh, what the church for uh, now almost uh, uh, two millennia have called the seven deadly sins. And uh, the seven deadly sins aren't found per se in the scriptures in a list that say, okay, here are the seven deadly sins. But the church has defined these as sources of all other sins. And we know that as we read throughout the Scripture, every one of the sins that are articulated in this list are spoken about over and over and over again throughout the pages of Holy Scripture. And so over these next eight weeks, we are going to look at each one of these particular sins, uh, what they are, how they impact our lives, how they can bring us into great turmoil and struggle in our walk with God, and then we're going to learn how we might find victory. Each and every week we're going to find a case study throughout Holy Scripture as to where one of these particular sins found itself being manifested in the life of a man or woman uh, within uh, the biblical story. And so we're going to be looking at each of these and hopefully as we learn about how utterly sinful we are, and many of us maybe are even deceived to think that we're not as sinful as we really are, we're going to learn first of all that we're sinners But I hope amidst that dark backdrop that we will see how great our sin is. But if I only teach you that, I have failed. That once we see how dark our sin is, we will see how absolutely beautiful Jesus Christ is. And how glorious He is. And how He has come and taken away our sin and taken away our guilt and taken away our shame. So that we can stand as righteous children before the God of the universe. And so that's where we want to go over these next couple uh, months as we explore uh, what it means to be people who have been saved out of our utter sin and brought into a place of grace. And so this morning, uh, we're going to look at Romans chapter 6 this morning. Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you, or in the seats that are in the back, and you'll find our passage on page 943. Page 943. Let me uh, read that for us as you turn there. I'll give you a moment, and uh, we'll just hear from the word of what it has to say about our relationship with sin and why this is such an important topic for us as a church. Romans 6, starting in verse 12, and I'll read through verse 14. It says the following, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God, to those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. God, we come before you, and as we begin this new series, we fully recognize that we are sinners. In a group this size, Lord, it is probably no shock or surprise that embodied within each and every one of our lives, almost every sin that we see throughout Scripture has a place in the life of each person here. Lord, we can think that we are better than we are, but Your Word as as the prosecuting attorney stands us up and and reminds us over and over again that we are sinners in need of Your grace. And so, Lord, as we look at this series, Lord, I pray that it would cause conviction. That, Lord, we would do business with You. That we would truly see who we are. That we would allow You to speak uh, to our lives and and our actions, and our thoughts, and our words. That we would agree with you as your Spirit uh, convicts us of wrongdoing. But Lord, I pray that we wouldn't stay there. 
I pray those feelings of guilt and shame would leave like a summer thunderstorm quickly and that the rays of hope and the rays of grace and the rays of God, your love for us, would be so magnificent that it would fill the skies of our lives and remind us of what is behind us and of the good things you have called us into. Lord, we are reminded that it was you who called us out of darkness and it was you who brought us into your wonderful light. So Lord, let us understand our sin and let us then move from our sin so that we might experience the real blessing that comes in a right relationship with you. Lord, I pray today if there is someone in this place who has never dealt with their sin, who has never given it over to you, that today would be the day they would meet Jesus. To you be the glory, honor, and praise in all that we say and do in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to speak on the subject of sin under the heading, Wanted Sin. We see a lot of wanted signs in our world. And when we see the sign of wanted, we can think of two very different and distinct things. The first thing that we see when we see a sign for wanted is an invitation for something that you want to be brought into your life. As an employer, there are times when I've put out a help wanted sign where I've looked for uh, someone uh, to come and help me uh, in the company that I run. And what it is, is it's an invitation. It's saying, if you're looking for something, I'm looking for you. If, if you need a job, then you're coming to the right place. I'm advertising to the world that I want something, and I'm in the business of trying to find it. But wanted signs don't always have a picture of invitation. Sometimes wanted signs go the exact opposite way. We see wanted signs when we talk about criminals. Here, of course, is the famous gangster Al Capone. And this was one of the pictures that was sent out by J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director. And what it was was a sign that said, listen, we're looking for this guy. And we're looking for him not to hang out with him, not to have fun with him, not to uh, fulfill a need we have for ourselves, but we're looking for him because we want to stop his reign of terror and his reign of gangster activity that was taking place in the Chicagoland area. We're looking for him so that we can shut him down. Well, that issue of wanted, when it regards to sin, is a decision that each and every one of us have to make. What kind of sign are you putting out in your spiritual life with regards to sin? Are you telling sin, hey, I want you. I need you. I want you to come into my life. I want you to fill a need that I, that I don't have. I, I want to invite you into my life. Or are you one who is saying to sin, listen, I'm going to hunt you down. I'm going to hunt you down because I want to destroy you and stop your reign of terror in my life. You see, we have to make a decision as followers of Jesus Christ what kind of sign we're putting out when it comes to sin. Far too many of us with our words say, hey, I want to stop this sin. I want to destroy this sin. I want to mortify this sin. I want to make sure it never has a place in my life. We say that on Sunday. But then when we're by ourselves, or we're with our group of unbelieving friends, or we're in the workplace, or God seems distant at a moment in our lives, our actions go the opposite way. We welcome, we applaud that opportunity to once again engage with that sin as if it is something lacking in our lives, so that when sin comes, we say, good, I needed you, I missed you, and I welcome you into my life. Is sin something we want to fill that which is lacking? Or is sin, as the Bible tells us, something that we are seeking to destroy in all areas of our life before it destroys us? Now, why in the world would we invest eight weeks on a series on sin? Well, there's a couple reasons this morning that I want to give. By the way, there will be five points this morning, and I want you to know the last uh, five minutes you will get the last five points. So don't get nervous, okay? 
We're going to do a lot of beginning work, and you're going to wonder, is this ever going to get done? It will. And I don't want you to think I forgot that I had points in the sermon outline this morning. But why do we focus in on a sermon and series on sin? Let me give you a couple of reasons. Number one, the reason why we talk about sin is it applies to every man, woman, and child. Romans 3.23 says, for all have, help me out, sinned. Okay, you've got it. You don't need to be a Greek scholar to understand that the word all means all, okay? I didn't have to study that word. I didn't have to wonder what, what does that word mean. It means all of us, every one of us, have sinned. As a pastor and as a part of the preaching team, we many times will ask the question, what do we want to speak to our people about? And we'll always ask the question, how does this apply to the different ages that are represented in our church? Does this sermon address the the students that are in our midst? Does it address the young adults in our midst? Does it address those who are uh, going through the days of young family life? How about our older individuals, the empty nesters, the, uh, the elderly in our church? Will it apply to all? Well, yeah, when we talk about sin, from the youngest to the oldest, from the man to the woman, sin addresses an issue that we all have. We've got to address it because of that. Second... By examining a set of sins over a prolonged period of time will enable us to know who our enemy is and the weapons he uses against us in order that we might be able to fight a better fight against it. So we want to know what the enemy's using. We want to know what weapons he has because if they've got a certain set of weapons, then we want to make sure we have a defense mechanism given by God so that we might find victory over sin. Third, it's good to talk about sin because as we examine sin, we cannot help because if we just deal with sin on our own, if we just think that what what Tim is talking about is a set of moral absolutes, don't do this, but do this and your life will be fine, if you think that that's how you're going to win against sin, that's behavior modification That's not the mortification of sin. And God says, I don't want to just change your behavior. I want to change your heart. And what we'll begin to see as we look at the darkness of sin, as I said in the introduction, we will recognize how great and marvelous our salvation and our Savior is. If we never identify how sinful we really are, then our salvation isn't all that great. If we think that we just need a little help, just a little pick-me-up, then Jesus dying on the cross is overkill. But if we recognize how absolutely offensive our sin is to a holy God, that He would put His Son on the cross and would bear the burden of our sin, and if I begin to recognize how awful and ugly and sinful my sin really is, then I am in awe of what the God of the universe did for me through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we want to see how great our Savior is and how great His sacrifice was. Another reason why we need to talk about sin is because the Bible does. In fact, the word sin, just the word sin, is mentioned more than 400 times in all of Scripture, one of the most used words in all of Holy Scripture. And if the Bible speaks about sin more than 400 times, well, maybe we should. Maybe it should be a part of our our sermons all the time. And I'm not even adding the derivatives of the word sin, like unrighteousness, filthiness, uh, particular uh, mentions of particular types of sin. If you add those up, the number is well into the thousand. The Bible speaks about sin, and because the Bible does, we should. Finally, the reason why we need to talk about sin is because sin is what steals our joy away. God longs for His children to live lives of great joy because of the work of Christ. And the devil comes and he knows, listen, he knows that a child of God can never be plucked out of the Father's hand. So the devil says, listen, I can't steal you from God. God has already saved you. God is in the process of sanctifying you, and he who began a good work in you will be faithful to see it to completion. The devil knows the Bible. He knows that you're untouchable with regards to your salvation as a child of God. 
So what does the devil do? The devil says, listen, I can't disqualify them of their salvation, for nothing can separate them from the love of God. So what I will do is I will make their lives miserable and render them obsolete so that they may have eternal life in God, but they'll never feel that confidence. They'll never experience that joy. And I will fill their lives with all sorts of filth. I'll fill their lives with all sorts of unrighteousness that they will never experience the blessing of what it is to be a child of God. And in doing so, I help to disqualify them from being an impact in their community and in their families and in their church. We must talk about sin. Now here's the problem. Churches aren't. So many churches in the last generation have given up this subject matter altogether. In fact, uh, one of the pastors of one of the largest churches in the United States says the following with regards to sin. When interviewed, he was asked, why don't you talk about sin? He says, sin is negative. I want to be positive. If I tell someone that they have issues in their life that have to change, then they will fail to see the real champion they are. Well, let me remind you of something with regards to Christianity. The only champion in this universe is Jesus Christ. The only one who deserves the glory and the honor is the perfect one, Jesus. And what we need to recognize is, there's no champion in us. The Bible makes it clear we are blind, dead, and held captive by the devil because of sin. That doesn't sound very championing, if you will. And what we need to understand is, the Bible is positive about a lot of things. Listen to what the Bible is positive about. It is positively sure that you and I are sinners. It is positively sure that we are on our way to hell. It is positively sure that without the blood of Jesus Christ being placed on our lives, that you and I will spend an eternity in hell. You see, you can talk positively about sin because the Bible does. It is positive that sin will be yours and my destruction. And so we've got to talk about it. In a recent article in Relevant Magazine, Scott McKnight says the following. In an article he wrote down, Why doesn't anybody talk about sin. Notice what he says. To many, sin has fallen into grace. Well, what does that mean? When we talk about God's grace, we are assuming the reality of sin, that we are sinners and that God has forgiven us. But in our language today, sin is not only an assumption, it's an accepted assumption. And not only is it an accepted assumption, it also doesn't seem to matter. It's as if we're saying, yes, of course we sin, and then we do nothing about it. Widespread apathy towards sin reveals in itself the lack of interest in holiness. You see, your grandparents' generation overdid it. Going to movies and dancing and drinking alcohol became the telltale signs of unholiness. Damning those who did such things became the legalistic judgmental context for church life. So your parents' generation, inspired in part by the 60s, jaunted its way into the freedom of the Christian life, which meant often enough, I can do whatever I want because of God's grace. That generation's lack of zeal for holiness has produced a trend today. Acceptance of sin and ignorance of its impact and weakened relationships with God, people, and the world. You see, when we talk about sin, we need to recognize and know the only one that can lead us in that discussion is God himself through Holy Scriptures. And what is troubling then is even within a church like Village, we can fall prey to speaking about sin in a way that dishonors God and causes us to go down a wrong path of sanctification. Let me explain. I want you to write these down. How do we approach sin? This isn't in your outline. Just, just throw these down because I think they can be helpful for you. The first way we can approach sin is what I would like to call the small group approach. The small group approach. 
What I mean is picture in your moment, you're with a bunch of Christians, you're in a wonderful living room, you're all sipping your coffee and, and just dreaming about fellowship time where you get to eat some pie, and, and prayer time comes along, or the discussion around the, the Bible study comes around, and the issue of sin comes up. And we know, we're Christians, we recognize that we're all sinners. I'm going to imagine that if you've been around Village Bible Church long enough, you know that you are a sinner in need of God's grace. But what we begin to do is we recognize, listen, I know I'm a sinner, but I want to make sure in my small group nobody really knows how sinful I am. I want to make sure that people don't think too lowly of me, because then they may not want to talk with me during snack time. They may not want to sit next to me in small group. They may judge why I hold a certain position within the church. And so when I talk about sin... The way I'm going to talk about sin is I'm going to talk about it as a struggle. I'm going to talk about it as a quirky foible, if you will. An idiosyncrasy. Kind of just an oddity of who I am. Maybe a dysfunction. And we admit to it, but we admit to it in a light-hearted kind of way. We talk about it, but we joke. That's kind of just who I am. I'm just kind of an oddity. And instead of dealing with it in a serious way, we play it off like it's just a little fun part of the game. Instead of the serious, soul-destroying plague that brings forth real-life consequences. Because of this small group approach to dealing with sin, you and I are lulled into a sleep of security with little urgency that we must put to death the sin that's destroying our lives. The small group approach. Notice the second one, and the second one is what I'd like to call the support group approach. The support group approach. The support group, whether it's Weight Watchers or Alcoholics Anonymous or, or any other manner of support groups, the very presence of you in the midst is a word of confession. By being in that support group, you've acknowledged that you have a need. And so that's good. And in many ways, support groups are incredibly honest. Unlike the small group approach, the support group is blatantly honest about the struggle that they have with a particular vice or a particular issue. And so there's no problem in speaking to the issue of the problem that they're facing. But the problem with the support group is, while there's always room for public confession, very often there is little room for repentance or a real calling to a change of life. And so what we will do is we'll say, listen, I'm a sinner. And I'm dirty and I'm rotten and I'm broken. And man, I have this just horrific sin in my life that eats me up. And I'm going to get a group of people around me that has the same struggles, that deals with the same issues. And we're going to get together. We're going to all talk about how broken we are and how messed up we are. But listen, a support group will do you no good unless it moves you from saying, yeah, we're all broken and, and we're all messed up to a point that says, but God has created us for something more for something different. And so we're going to leave this place of brokenness and we're going to rely on, on Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross and we're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to say no to unrighteous things, the things that we've now publicly confessed. We're going to walk away from those things in newness of life knowing that God has empowered me to righteousness and not the bondage of sin. The support group approach. Then there's the Pharisee approach. The Pharisee approach. We love this one. Because this one allows us to be hard on sin. But not our sin, everyone else's, right? And so what we do is like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, we look at every other person and we say, wow, they're sinful. Wow, they're messed up. Wow, they're broken. And I'm sure glad I'm not them. We are quick to point out sin in others' lives, but never to look at our own sin. 
Now, one of the things that we will say, because we don't want to sound like a Pharisee, because every time we read in the Bible that a Pharisee is involved, it never speaks well of them, right? And we want to be spoken well of, and we don't want to be a Pharisee, because they made Jesus' life miserable during his ministry, and we as Christians don't want to do that. So we don't want to be defined as Pharisees. So we put around it as if we kind of put it as a deodorant to fight against a Pharisaical, if you will, approach is the phrase this, there go I but the grace of God. Now really, I don't buy it, I don't think that way, because I wouldn't touch that sin with a 10-foot pole. That's repugnant to me. And how dirty, how filthy are you that you would be so far from God's goodness and God's grace that, man, you are bad, and I'm just a little better than you are. Oh, we're all sinners, but you are far worse of a sinner than I am. You see, a Pharisee approach allows us as Christians to be hard on sin, just not our own sin. It keeps us from having to address our own while going over the top and addressing the sins of those around us. Fourth, we have what I would like to call the horizontal sin-only approach. That is uh, an approach that was made popular in the 50s and 60s within the main line and liberal denominations of the church. The church would talk about sin, but instead of talking about it being an affront to God, they began to talk about sin being an affront to one another, right? They would talk about the vices of one another. And so uh, they would speak about racism. And they would say the great offense of racism is that we hurt our brothers and sisters. And that's absolutely true. But let's remember that the greater sin is not just against our brother and sister, but it has to do with our God. And a recognition that, God, I've sinned against you. You've created all manner of people of all manner of nationalities. And instead of obeying and and loving all that you created, because when you created, you said everything was good. And I'm saying of this individual who's a different skin color of of a different culture than I am, that they're no good, I'm sinning against you and in turn sinning against my brother. But the horizontal only view says it never has to do with God. So live at peace with one another, live tolerantly amongst one another, love one another, and if you don't, that's the great sin that's being committed. You are sinning against your brother or sister of which Jesus tells us we should not. Now you flip that for the fifth one, And that's the vertically uh, directed only approach. And we do this in the evangelical church. We're not like the liberals who say, uh, you know, listen, it's only about our relationship with one another. Our issue of sin, we take Psalm 51, 5, Psalm 50, I'm sorry, Psalm 51, 4 is our key verse. David says, after sinning uh, the sin of adultery and premeditated murder, to keep Bathsheba as his wife, says the following, against you alone, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so as evangelicals, what we'll do is we'll say, listen, where my sin is at is my sin is with between me and God. It doesn't involve anyone else. Who I really sinned against was God. And I need to address that. And what we will do as evangelicals many times is we'll say, i got to deal with my sin. So I'll throw a prayer up to God. God, I'm sorry for my sin. God, I confess this sin to you. And then I'm taken care of. And then I can go because if I confess my sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. The problem with the vertical only approach to our sin is that we fail to realize that yes we've sinned against God but in David's example David needed to go back to Bathsheba and say I've sinned against you I violated you I sinned against your husband I killed him I sinned against the people that I handed his death sentence to when they put him on the front lines. I sinned against Uriah, Bathsheba's husband's family. They're grieving the loss of their son. Uh, They're grieving the loss of their father, their brother. He sinned against them. David sinned against the Israel nation. He brought a reproach upon an entire nation as the king who was supposed to lead them with integrity and godly ethics. No restitution. No reconciliation. Yes, you and I have sinned greatly against God, but many times 
When we have sinned against God, we have trampled on our brothers and sisters along the way. And so we need to recognize this morning that none of these approaches accomplish what the Bible says. All of these ways minimize, distort, insulate us from recognizing sin and its manifold effects. Most importantly, they rob us from a clear knowledge of the way God has called us to live as followers of His. And they rob us of our joy. When we deny these consequences, you and I miss out on the healing God brings sinners. When we approach our sin as a small group approach, we lose the opportunity to find our true identity in God. When we act like sin is something that those people struggle with, we forfeit the joy of knowing God's gracious mercy that He's lavished upon us. When we fail to see that our sins alienate us from our neighbors, but also from a holy God, we fail to honor God as the one who has brought peace back to our lives with Him by sending His Son to the cross. And when we fail to recognize that our sin, which is an affront to God, has impacted the lives of those around us, then we fail to be able to experience what true and real reconciliation feels like when we are forgiven by our brothers. Let's stop kidding around because we need to talk about sin and when we talk about sin, we must do so in a biblical way. So how do we do that? The Bible tells us that sin is part of the very fabric of Holy Scriptures. You see, the Bible tells a story of God's rescue mission to redeem and renew rebels out of their sin, out of their shame, out of their guilt that has alienated us from Him. And Jesus Christ was sent. He was sent as a perfect man to do what Adam could not, to live a perfect life through the power of the Holy Spirit to do one thing, to conquer sin and death once and for all. And because of that, we now have the newness of life that gives us the power to say no to sin and unrighteousness and worldly lust and honor God in everything that we say, think, and do. You see, without us considering the true weight of sin, we will never understand the glory, goodness, or grace of God. That's why we have to deal with sin. But how do we do it? This week, the Olympics opened up. And the Olympics have been shrouded, if you will, in great fear. Rio is under strict warnings to when you leave a, a place of uh, confinement, a building, that you have all sorts of insect repellents all over your body. That if any part of your body is uncovered, you should do all you can to repel the insects because of the Zika virus. The Zika virus is a new virus. And we aren't fully aware of how it's contracted, how far it spreads, what are the full ramifications once someone catches it, and what it will do to our population. And so the fears of Zika, even many of the Olympic individuals who were planning on going to the Olympics made decisions not to go out of these fears. So it is with sin. We can, out of fear, just continue to play the status quo or, or try to run away from it, or we can start to investigate and understand uh, what it is, where it came from, how it spread, the effects that it has on our lives, and how we can be saved from it. And that's what we want to do with regards to sin. So let's answer some questions this morning about this issue that we've talked about. Here, now you get to your outline. Let's look first of all at the explanation. Let's answer the question, what is sin? When we answer the question with regards to what is sin, one will find a variety of definitions, especially if one chooses to define it in their own ways, on their own terms. Well, there may be some merit for you and I to get together and answer the question, what is sin? Because God is the one who is preeminently offended by our sin. We should probably ask Him what His opinion on sin truly is. Now, the Bible speaks of sin in a lot of different terms. The Bible speaks of sin as bad, evil, guilty, filthy, 
It speaks of it as unrighteousness, trespassing, and going astray. The Bible most frequently uses, when speaking of sin, it uses the Greek word hamartia. Hamartia. And that word hamartia, sin, most translated as sin, literally means that we miss the mark. It was a phrase that was used, and it's probably of no coincidence that we're speaking of one of the events in the Summer Olympics, that of archery, where an archer takes his bow and his arrow, and he aims for a bullseye, a target. And his goal isn't just to hit the target, but within the target is a very small spot that he wants to, from a very far distance, hit or strike with his arrow. And to do so takes utter perfection. Everything has to be right. The force of which the arrow goes from the bow. How far he pulls back the bow to strike that. The wind. The straightness of the arrow. Everything has to be accounted for. For you to hit the bullseye is to be perfect in every part of your approach in addressing that target. Romans 3.23 reminds us of this hamartia. When it says, for all have sinned, that is, put it in parentheses, for all have missed the mark and fallen short of God's gloried bullseye. So every one of us had an opportunity. In our lives, we pulled back and we said, okay, I'm going to hit the mark. I'm going to do what nobody else has done. And every one of us, we lined up and God said, there's the bullseye. That is my perfection. And we pulled back with the arrow and we missed. Now you would say, well, at least I hit part of the target. That's the Pharisee approach, right? God says it's not good enough just to hit the target, the big target. God says you got to hit the bullseye and none of us can hit it. But we're just glad maybe I hit the outside ring of it. But but Badal behind me, man, his shot off into left field. He wasn't even close. And so I feel pretty holy because, because his didn't even hit the target at all. At least I'm somewhere in the area code. God says, listen, if you don't hit the bullseye, you're going to hell. And so you need to recognize this morning, no matter how close you think you are to the bullseye, if you're not in the bullseye, and the Bible says, for all have missed the mark. Nobody hit the mark. Nobody got it. And this tells us our inability to appease a holy God. Because God says, okay, do it again. And we pull back the arrow, the arrow again. And what happened? Pull back the bow and shoot the arrow, and we miss again, and we miss again. Every day we get up and we miss the mark. And every day we get up and say, I'm going to hit the mark, and we miss every time. Our inability to appease a holy God. We can't do what we're required to do. We blow it every time. Second, the Bible uses another word with regards to sin. It's the Greek word anamia. And anamia in the Greek literally means iniquity iniquity and this means that sin is utter rebellion or lawlessness at the very heart of who we are you and i are rebels we are criminals we like if you will al capone are wanted by a holy god not wanted hey come and be a part of my life come enjoy good favor with me we are wanted god says i'm going to hunt you down you have offended me you have broken my law and you are a fugitive in need of punishment. And so this iniquity tells us that we miss the mark. How do we miss the mark? If you put the word anamia and hamartia together, what it means is that we have missed the mark by choosing to rebel against God instead of sticking to His plan of perfect obedience. God says, I want you to do this. Here's what your marching orders are. And we go this way. We say, I don't want to do it your way. I don't want to do it in your timing. I don't want to wait for your perfect plan. I'm going to do it myself. The rebellion says, God, you're not God, I am. You be quiet, God. I will do it my own way, when I want, how I want. Thirdly, the Bible speaks of sin, and it speaks of it in a way of talking about its depravity. Its depravity. And this word depravity in the scripture speaks of something that is corrupting, spoiling, and will one day be utterly destroyed. If we take the word depravity, iniquity, and sin, hamartia, 
we put those together, what is the biblical definition of sin? It's the following. Sin is missing God's perfect mark by willfully rebelling against God's commands and pursuing something that corrodes and spoils your soul to the point of utter destruction. God has a perfect plan for you. He's commanded you to live that way. And instead of following His ways, you willfully say, God, I don't want it. I don't need you. I'm going to do it my way. And the thing that you take, even though God is offering beauty and wonderful blessing, you say, I would rather have this garbage heap of sin, and I know it's going to rot me to the core, but I'd rather eat garbage than sit at your table with the finest of fare. And so I eat it, and in the moment that I eat it, I learn something that is true of myself and my sin, that because of it I will surely die. That is exactly what Adam and Eve felt in the garden. Don't eat from that tree. Why? Because I've given you every other tree. You can do whatever you want with everything else but this one thing. Don't eat from the tree. God, we don't like your rules. God, we don't like your ideas. God, we don't like the ground rules that you've set. So we're going to do it. And in that moment that they ate of that fruit, they learned that it was true, they would surely die. Notice the entrance of sin. Where did it come from? Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. If you were Romans 6, go to Romans 5. Romans 5, verse 12. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all, because all sinned. Let's stop there. Romans 5.12 tells us, where did sin come from? Sin entered the world through one man, and that man's name was Adam. His crime? Rebellion against God. The first man, Adam, sinned, and his transgression has spiraled to every one of us. Each of us have been impacted by that singular fall. We've been impacted by a sin, listen, that we weren't a part of. But sin is so sick, sin is so powerful, that it never, listen, it never impacts just the sinner, right? It always affects others. The Bible says that sin defiles many. And in the garden, as our representative Adam, when he fell, didn't just sin and, and, and defile himself, he defiled his wife. And he didn't just defile his wife, he defiled his children, and he didn't just defile them, but his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren. And then we had a, a hundred thousand more grandchildren. And we find ourselves being impacted by that sin. But where did Adam get it? Well, we know that Adam in the garden was tempted by the devil. In the book of Ezekiel, write this passage down. Ezekiel 28, 13 through 15 speaks figuratively of Satan, who is an angel who was created without flaw, who was created to be the chief of all angels. And verse 15 gives us a hint as to the origin of sin. Speaking of Lucifer, the devil, in his angelic state in heaven, God said, you were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Where did sin come from? The heart of Lucifer as an angel, chief cherub in God's angelic army. Write this passage down, Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14. It indicates that Satan, Lucifer, sinned in his pride and began to covet God's place of authority and his throne in heaven. And he rebelled against God, and a third of the angels thought that Lucifer could do it. That's how powerful he was. And God said, sin will not reign in heaven. And he plunged the devil and the demons that would become of them down to hell. Now some of you would say, now wait a minute. You put on your wannabe theologian hat and you say, okay, sin wasn't just found in Adam, but it was found in the heart of Lucifer. God is the one who created Lucifer. And if God created Lucifer with the ability to sin, then God created uh, us with the ability to sin. Then God must therefore be the author of sin. No, 
you're doing bad theology. Because the Bible makes it abundantly clear, while it doesn't tell us how sin entered into the life of Lucifer, how we can't understand how a blameless creature could one day come up with a sinful thought, the Bible makes it clear in the book of James that God, first of all, is the giver of all good things. That God cannot tempt, James says. That when one falls into sin, he falls into it by being tempted by his own desire. His own desire. Listen to me. The entrance of sin in your life and in my life cannot be blamed on God. It cannot be blamed by the devil. It can't be blamed by your parents. It can't be blamed by your pastor. It can't be blamed on anyone else. But when we are enticed by our own desires, we fall into sin. Sin is your fault and it's my fault. It's our own. And that entrance of sin into our lives, falls squarely on our shoulders. It's our fault. Well, how is it spread? Let's notice the extent. Romans 5.12 says, it didn't just spread to one. It says that sin came into the world through one man, Romans 5.12, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Every one of us, have a virus running through our veins. The virus of sin. All of us, because of that virus, have rebellion running through our veins. One of my friends just welcomed a new grandbaby into the world. A beautiful little boy. So precious. So cute. So innocent, right? Wrong. That little stinker is the epitome of selfishness. Me, 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 me. The greatest victim of that selfishness? Mama. Mama cares, mama nurtures, mama has shared very personal space with this creature. And the baby comes out, and the baby doesn't come out, listen, with a bouquet of flowers and a thank you card. Hey, I know the last nine months have been hard. But I want you to know I love you. No, what does the baby do? The baby comes out and says, I hope you, uh, hope you got plenty of sleep because you ain't going to see any more of that. I'm going to come at you. I'm going to drive you crazy because it's all about me. My wife said, hey, be, be nice to the babies, okay? Okay, they don't know what they're doing, okay? That's a mom talking. See, moms, you guys drank the Kool-Aid. They're coming at you. And you still love them. God bless you. The dad's taking a nap on the couch right now. He's oblivious to all of this. But that's what the Bible says when David tells us that we were conceived in iniquity. And we were brought forth in sin. And so you know how it begins? It starts out with that uh, ignorant, if you will, rebellion and selfishness. But that child gets a little older. And you're enjoying a nice, wonderful day at the Aldi, shopping through the aisles, and everything's going great, and you're picking up all your grocery items, and then Aldi has those gummy bears at the end of the uh, counter at the checkout line, and the kid grabs the Aldi gummy bears, and you say, no, dear, not today. I, we, got, we got all kinds of good stuff, no gummy bears. And the kid falls down as if having an epileptic seizure. <laughs> right? Okay? And you're like, well, that's, that's that free spirit. No, that's sin. Okay? That's sin. And that epileptic seizure will start to, to give itself up and, and the sin will happen more in the heart as they get older. And it will continue to be filled. And so that sin of that epileptic seizure in the Aldi aisle will turn into deception when it becomes a teenager. And it will become all manner of things. It will become a fornicator, an adulterer. It will become a liar, a cheater, and all of these things. Listen, from the moment of conception, you and I were brought into sin. And it, and it spreads. When I was in the fourth grade, I know I'm now aging myself because these diseases don't even exist anymore. I feel like I'm an old person talking about smallpox. But we had a disease back in my day called chickenpox. And in the fourth grade, I contracted the chicken pox. And the doctor said I got one of the worst cases that he had ever seen. The pox, I mean, it really sounds bad when you say it that way. 
The pox was all over my body. There wasn't an inch, and I don't mean to be gross, there wasn't an inch of my body that wasn't affected. It drove me nuts for two weeks. So it is with sin. There's not a part of your being that isn't impacted by your sin. What that means is that sin has spread so far that there isn't a part of who you are that isn't impacted by it. The way you talk, the way you plan, the way you spend your money, the way you dream, the way you address issues and struggles in your life, how you express your sexuality, how you invest your time, all are impacted by your sin and mine. But we don't want to talk about it. We want to downplay it. And we carry around the pox of sin all over our bodies. But like a bunch of ignorant fools, we look at each other and say, you look good, I look good. And all the while, when nobody's looking, we are scratching, dying, because every part of our body is affected by that disease. We have to deal with sin. Notice, fourth, the effects. How does it stain? Death comes into our lives. Sin brought death. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sin against God, and God says, in the moment that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. Well, did they die? No, they went on to have pretty good life. They had children, yeah, there was an issue when one child killed another, which is a consequence of sin. But for the most part, Adam and Eve, I think, lived a pretty happy life, just as you and I, by God's common grace, share a wonderful life as sinners in a world that an almighty, holy God created. So how did we die? Well, we know that we will physically die. For the wage of sin, Romans 6.23 says, is, help me out, death. And there's a 100% guarantee, listen, 100% guarantee, death bats a thousand, right? We all are going to die. I don't know anybody in this place that says, you know what, Uh, those dark ages were tough when I was living through them, but things are looking pretty good. No, no. All around about a hundred years, okay, if we're lucky, we're going to die. Because sin brings death, physical death. Notice it brings death to a relationship. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they went running for the hills. They heard God coming and they ran. Why? Because they were filled with guilt and shame. And when we sin, we bring guilt and shame and reproach onto our lives. And as a result of that, we know we can't be in fellowship with a holy God. And so we run. We run because we know we can't have a relationship with Him while holding on to our sin. Finally, death will come to us as sinners when a sinner is consigned to an eternity without God in hell. Sin is so bad that when it goes unpaid, it renders a sinner worthy of eternal conscious punishment in hell in utter misery and pain. An eternity under the wrath of Almighty God There are no words in the human language to speak of God's utter hatred for sin. Which then leads to one final question. And it's a word we don't hear very often. Expiation. How are we saved from sin? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Write that passage down. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 gives us hope. It says the following. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. I hope that at this point in the sermon you say, where is the hope? And the hope is in Jesus Christ. You see, that cancer that affects us so badly, where there is no human cure, where we are all carriers and all succumbing to its power, have no hope. But Jesus came. At just the right time, and in just the right way, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to set the captives free. But in order to do that, he had to do something that Adam couldn't do, that Moses couldn't do, that David couldn't do, that the prophets couldn't do, that John the Baptist couldn't do, and that none of us could do, and that is hit God's perfect mark of holiness. And for 30 years, Jesus did that. Tempted by the devil, he remained pure. 
Scorned by people around him, he remained pure. Betrayed by those who said they loved him, he remained pure. In order to do what? To go to a cross and to become sin on our behalf. Jesus lived a perfect life. And what he deserved was absolute praise and glorious adulation from heaven and earth alike. What did he get? Scorned, mocked, abused, beaten, and hung on a cross to die a sinner's death. And when he did, God poured all his righteous wrath and indignation and punishment on his one and only Son. So that he would embrace and take upon himself the wrath of God so that you and I might experience God's grace, love, and mercy. That's why the hymn writer says, In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness was scorned by the one he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. i got to close this thing. Listen, you got a decision to make this morning. If you are a sinner who has never bowed the knee to Jesus, today is the day of salvation. Don't go to hell. Don't try to deal with your sin on your own. Give it to the one who can save you. Give it to the one who can make you new. Give it to the one who can love you in spite of who you are and take away your reproach and take away your filth and make you as white as snow. If you don't know how to do that, if you don't know what that involves, come and talk to me after the service. Go to the Welcome Center. They'd love to talk with you. Pull someone beside you and say, listen, tell me more about the salvation For a follower of Jesus Christ, this sermon should call you to deal seriously with sin. Not to sugarcoat it, but to see it as God does. Instead of living in guilt, live in hope. Hope that Christ now intercedes as your Savior each and every day. And that one day, when your eyes close and your brain ceases to function, He will welcome you into His presence for all eternity. And we will experience the goodness of God's great love for us let me close with the words again of in christ alone which remind us of this amazing love there in the ground christ's body lay light of the world by darkness slain then bursting forth in glorious day up from the grave he rose again and now he stands in victory since curse has lost its grip on me For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Therefore, there is no guilt in life. There's no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to the final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. There's no power of hell. There's no scheme of man that can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I stand. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you. With an infinite amount of thank yous. Because you took that which was dirty, and that which was sinful, and that which was ugly, and that which was filthy, and that which was beyond human cleaning up and you saved us you saved us you saved us from that filth from that shame from that guilt and you made us as white as snow you brought us back into relationship with you you placed us in the heavenly realms with christ jesus and you have given us now victory in christ jesus and made us more than conquerors because of him and for that we say thank you. But Lord, we know our thanks is not enough. What you've called us to is obedience. And I pray on behalf of my people and on behalf of my own life that we would obey you in all that you command so that we may bring glory to you as the one who saved us and now has sent us forth to live righteous and upright lives. 
Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to empower us. We cannot do it apart from you. And so we ask that you would empower us and you would fill us by your Spirit so that we may fulfill the calling you have in our lives. So Lord, as we explore these sins in these weeks to come, that we might see them as you do and might be empowered to address them in a way that only you can so that each of us, Lord, will find victory and no more defeat. Send us forth now, Lord, into this battlefield so that we might find victory in Jesus. We give you the glory for it in Christ's name. Amen.